Hi, Grace. Hey, Ohenya. Well, how have you been? Well, I've been... it's been a long time since the last time that we record. We've been a bit busy, and Grace had been sick, to be precise. And mm-hmm. so that's the reason why we took a bit longer to do this episode. Yeah, well, I'm back in the land of the living now, so yeah, we <laughs> present to you the fourth episode of A History of Evil Men, and a bit of a different tone to today's episode. What are we talking about, Anya? As we already decided that we are going to focus on crimes that happen in Argentina, New Zealand, or Australia, this is our next Argentinian episode. It's going to be on a very sad case of murder that actually on February of this year, it was the 20th anniversary of this crime. We are going to be talking about the kidnap and murder of Natalia Melman in Argentina, in Miramar. Natalia Melman was born the 13th of March of 1986 in Buenos Aires, Argentina. She was the daughter of Laura Calampuca and Gustavo Melman, and she had three siblings. Noel, Nicolás, and Laura. So they were born originally in Buenos Aires, but when Natalia was young still, they decided to move to Miramar. Do you know the nickname of Miramar? I believe you did tell me, but it does now slip my mind. The City of Children. Yes. I mean, it's reported that the family wanted to have a change of lifestyle. They wanted to gear down a little bit and... uh, you know, take some time away from the busy hustle and bustle of... Uh, the big city, yeah. hoping to find a quiet place to raise their children. Mm. And things turned out to be very different at the end, didn't they? Yes, Grace. unfortunately. Natalia's family and friends describe her as a friendly, solidary and romantic girl. They came from a working class family and she would often help as a waitress working in her parents' bar. So on the night of February the 3rd, 2001, Natalia went out to the boliches like most teenagers do. Mm-hmm. She was 15 at that time. And it is said that she was looking forward meeting her ex-boyfriend, a boy called Maximiliano Marolt, in the hopes of um, well, coming back with her boyfriend. Like. Yeah, I mean, she wanted to reconcile, but, uh, yeah, unfortunately didn't end up that way. Um, the couple did seem to reconcile. It seems like Maximiliano was already dating another girl, so when Natalia and her friends found him in the Boliche Amadeus, Boliche is how we call the nightclubs in Spanish. Mm-hmm. So when she find herself with Maximiliano, finally he was with another girl, apparently dating another girl. But he was also in company of an older man that will become very important further mm. in the story. Somewhat of a unfortunate uh, linchpin in the in the whole events. So witness because. Keep in mind that Miramar was a quite small city. At that time, it had barely um, 8,000 inhabitants, even though 
it was and it still is a very popular place for people to go on the summer because it's on the Argentinian coast. Mm -hmm. So neighbors and witnesses would later say that Natalia went back, I mean, she left the boliche at 6 or 7 a.m. and she started walking by herself back to her house. But the thing is, Natalia never got to arrive to her house. On that same day, Natalia's family went straight away to the police. Uh, yeah, to make a missing persons report because it was extremely unlikely for her to just... Leave not... her home and not tell anything to her parents. And the fact that they had called around and tried to find where she was or who she might have gone. And it was later discovered that the uh, person who she was introduced to by Maximilian... In that night. That night was a man known as Gustavo Fernandez, or El Gallo. And he had a... Criminal record. Criminal record, but was also known as a, an, an informer and... Uh, a, had, had ties to the police. He had ties to yeah. the police. Mm. But so far we know that he had a criminal record for petty crime, stealing, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, but when the parents, Laura and Gustavo, went straight away to the police, they tried to, they basically insinuated or told the parents that her daughter was just another teenage runaway, mm. even though there were no reasons for her to just abandon her place. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it was not, not something that she would do. And even so, a 15-year-old, mm. a child, like adults can get lost. I mean, you can, yep. but not an adolescent. No. And, you know, the fact that she didn't plan, it didn't seem that she planned ahead for a, uh, mm -hmm. a, uh, to run away, she didn't take any uh, any bags, any extra clothes, you know, no extra shoes or jewelry or anything. No reason to believe that yeah. she was that she, that she had escaped. If she had run away, she literally dropped everything and bolted after going out clubbing all night. Which, yeah, which I don't think so. No, <laughs> no, that sounds about as yeah feasible never. as you know as as you think it is. The search for Natalia. And basically all this process, this long and painful process of seeking justice mm -hmm. for her crime was um, carried around by her family, by her parents especially, and of course brothers, siblings and friends of the family. Mm -hmm. They started doing their own research in Miramar, searching for her alive. So yeah, they really carried the weight of their own if you call it an investigation, but just they really carried out the search they were taking, on their own shoulders yeah. because of the reluctance of the police to even classify it as a, a disappearance, a missing person. Tabo Melman, the dad, the parent of um, Natalia, said that he started uh, searching the, um, the support of the media and that that made some of the heads of the police actually very nervous. Even nowadays, the family says that straight away they had the feeling that the police wasn't doing as much as they should do and they were hiding something. So it was two or three days after Natalia's disappearance that Gustavo 
her dad, again, with a friend, went to Necochea because they had the contact of a woman or a man that had a cadaver dog because they felt like they should start getting ready for the worst. for the worst, yeah. So, yeah, again, the police didn't use cadaver dogs. It was the parent of the missing girl who got Mm. it. But when he was on the way, when he was on the highway, he actually heard a news on the radio in which it says that the body of Natalia had been found Mm -hmm. in a greenhouse in Miramar, precisely. That's right. This was on February the 8th. It was in the uh, Dunicola Nursery, which is a a public space, which is... Yeah, like a small forest-like among the dunes. Yeah, kind of like an urban green space that's kind of there to... But this place actually had been already been searched before, and that's why the family were feeling so weird. They found the body of Natalia, so she was murdered there. And when it was taken by the coroner, the autopsy indicated that uh, Natalia had bruises on her tights. She had been burned with a cigarette on her left hand. Her nose was broken and she had a strong concussion to her head. But she was actually killed by strangulation. She was strangled with her own shoelaces. Gustavo, her dad, was the first uh, relative to get to the greenhouse. Mm. Later on, Gustavo would say that he saw how the police was cutting the nails of Natalia mm-hmm. once they got to the morgue. But he was uh, lucky enough that uh, his sister is a doctor. So she actually, she was actually the person that told him that the police shouldn't do that mm-hmm. before doing the autopsy. Yes. So Natalia was also sexually abused. And in the autopsy, they were found how many different profiles of DNA on her? It was five. The Melmans had been mostly being helped in their search by the people of the city. And there was a very big rumor that turned out to be true exactly that the police were involved in that. So when the body of the younger was found that same night, Mm. a whole uh, pueblada uh, happened and they actually attacked the police station of Miramar Pueblada. That would be the verb comes mm. from pueblo. Pueblo is town. So basically it's like a whole town going and yeah. it was a riot in which most Miramar partake because it was very well known that the police would uh, stop uh, young adolescents in the streets or that they will be accomplices with the sex trafficking. Hence why when it was found out that um, Natalia had been seen in the presence of Gustavo Fernandez, who was a known snitch, but also he was known as a fixer of young adolescent females to police. And in this case... I mean, the role that El Gallo, that Gustavo Fernandez had, according to what her family and the neighbors of Miramar said, is that he would pick adolescent girls, particularly virgins, and he would kidnap them or just help the police to kidnap them and then take take them to parties in which the policemen would abuse them. Um, basically, Natalia was... Uh, was one of the girls. So from this point on, 
it's re- this is really where forensics take over and with such a a high profile case mm-hmm. and not to mention the entire the entire neighborhood being on an absolute knife edge about to the whole city being on a knife edge and with emotions flaring up the a lot of a lot of scrutiny was put on the proceeds of or the proceedings of the forensics even from the get go though the forensic team faced a bit of an uphill battle it was found by natalia's father when he was on site at the greenhouse that evidence was already being tampered with he saw a what he believed to be a forensic nurse trimming Natalia's fingernails and uh, bagging the uh, the clippings uh, for supposedly for evidence. However, he found out later from a uh, colleague that this was not part of the procedure and that without the evidential matter, um, skin, blood, other, you know, uh, genetic material that collects under a victim's fingernails, it would make the proceeding of uh, identifying any DNA or collecting any DNA evidence that much more harder. And as such, that evidence was never admitted into court and may possibly have just vanished after that, but it was definitely not entered as evidence into the trial. So from that time on, all the evidence that was gathered for the uh, well, that identified five separate people was from pubic hairs that were found on Natalia's body and also semen and other bodily fluids that were collected off the, uh, off Natalia and, and from the crime scene. To discover, to investigate the crime. Mm. They didn't use private investigators as detective. Mm. But it was the force, the, the police force of the province, they would send officers mm. in disguise mm. to walk around Miramar and they would pretend to be, and this was funny, they would pretend to be uh, booksellers or Bible sellers or preachers like evangelists. Mm. So they would be hanging around and they would strike a conversation with the neighbors, like mm. pretending they didn't know. So that's how they would know what the people were saying mm. about the crime. And it was also something that they got to do uh, because of the family, because they would start demonstrations every single Saturday, mm. every single week. They would involve like the police force outside Miramar because they knew that... The locals wouldn't react well. The, the locals wouldn't react. So that's how they made it. So that's how they got an entomologist. Mm. What an entomologist does is study insects and bugs specifically. But he discovers that the insects that were on Natalia's body didn't belong to the greenhouse where she was found. Mm-hmm. So that's how they discovered that she had been kept and murdered also in a small house that was in the Copacabana neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That is a neighborhood of Miramar. It's like a, a bit of more of a suburb. Like, I think it was an abandoned house. Mm. And also the dust and sand or soil that was on, on her body, her, on her body and her shoes didn't match with the one of the greenhouse. No. And again, was perfectly matched 
or as close to with the uh, soil in the in the uh, surrounds of the police trap house. So the trial of the crime of Natalia was held on September of 2002. So that is the following year of Natalia being murdered after a massive police investigation and with the participation of 110 witnesses. In this case, three cops were found guilty of kidnapping, sexual abuse and homicide. Their names are Oscar Echenique, Ricardo Suarez and Ricardo Anselmini. They were sentenced to life imprisonment. Meanwhile, Gustavo Fernandez was also found guilty of being a participant in the kidnap of Natalia, but not her abuse because... It couldn't be proved that he was it present. Be, it couldn't be proved that he was present, and his sentence was of 25 years in prison. So the main evidence between these three cops that we talk about was, of course, the DNA and the fact that it was also found blood of Natalia in the car of one of them, Ricardo Anselmini. So what we understand is that she was kidnapped by El Gallo and was taken in Anselmini's car to the place where the police carried on the homicide. It should also be pointed out that some evidence brought against Corporal Ricardo Suarez, one of the policemen, was that... Natalia had very neat and uh, precise folds in her uh, in her trouser leg, one that was known to be favoured and uh, carried out. One that was yeah, a, a style of fold that was known to be used by these policemen. To be more precise, what Gustavo says is that he was. Uh looking at that uh, policeman during the trial, and mm. he was, perhaps this is a bit more speculation, but he saw the way he folded the, his own the sleeves shirt, on the his sleeves shirt. of yeah. his shirt. So mm. that's what it, it reminded Gustavo about that. But that's a bit more of a speculation. It's almost like a mm. curious... Uh, a curious observation and a yeah. personal tip, but someone who is so supremely perhaps confident of their being able to get away with such a horrible crime that they would would add personal flourishes while redressing one of their victims after raping and murdering them. So now that we remember, we find five policemen that match three of the samples of DNA that were found on Natalia but there are still two missing. Now, this is one thing that enrages me of this case and what enrages also the family of Natalia. The thing is, there is a fourth DNA that actually matches Mm. a policeman that was working at that time in Miramar. The name of this policeman that is nowadays retired is Ricardo Panadero. He was actually taken to trial on 2018 that is 17 years after the murder of Natalia. And surprisingly enough, his DNA matches with the DNA of one pubic hair, just one, a single pubic hair, 
that was found in the body of Natalia. So this pubic hair matches in a 97% with the DNA mm. of Panadero. But uh, his defense attorney alleged that because the sample was so old, it could have been contaminated. But there are not really proofs about this. Mm. So he was actually absolved in this um, trial. Uh, yet, on 2019, mm. I read the news, so he was absolved. Mm -hmm. But another judge found out to be... Admissible. Admissible. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> to be admissible. So he will be taken to trial. Again, I mean, under again. the, under the, uh, you know, the new, the new ruling. And hopefully, uh, he will be, uh, hopefully the evidence will be able to be presented in a way that makes it undeniably. Uh, hopefully that the parents of Natalia will see this guy in jail because seriously, how else is his pubic hair? get into the body of that girl if he wasn't one of the men that raped her. It's not like the DNA didn't match what the judges in that case said that that the pubic hair was degraded yep. for all the years, but the DNA matches. Yep. The DNA matched at the time. The DNA matched even though they claimed it may have degraded. However, that still doesn't change the fact that the DNA evidence was present on Natalia's body. How did it get there? There are no explanations. and That don't in involve <laughs> rape yeah. and murder. And so, you know what enrages me so much is what better proof, what a less circumstantial thing can be found that isn't DNA. And yet, through these years, these cops that are already in jail had tried to reduce their sentence or get... Acquittals or have the, have the. How do you say when they get to go out of jail to parole? Be, yeah, to be on parole. And they were actually granted and then taken away the parole. The first year that they tried to get it was on 2006, 2006. That is only four years after they were in jail. And actually, uh, Gustavo Fernandez, the man that was an accomplice of the police, got his sentence reduced from 25 years to 10 years. And he was set loose in 2010. And I couldn't find why he was set loose. But he's still living in Miramar and he works as a laborer. Laura Calampuca and Natalia, Natalia Mothers have actually seen him. On 2017, they were given parole to the cops, but after a few months, after the family of Natalia, uh, well, made a complaint, uh, the parole was taken away from them. And all these, all these three cops have uh, the same, the same lawyer, which has a, I don't know if you got to read any of that, Chris. I got to read a little bit. Um... So this is not the first time that this lawyer, Patricia Perello, found herself in a very controversial and um, big case. She had been also the lawyer of two primary teachers, Analia Schwartz and Fernando Melo Pacheco, who were actually accused and taken to trial for uh, sex abuse crimes uh, towards children that were going to a religious institution, a, a religious, a Christian kindergarten in the beginning of the 2000. 
Yeah. But perhaps her most famous case is the case of Carlos Monzon, a very famous and successful boxer, Argentinian boxer, that during the 1980s uh, was actually in prison for the murder of his partner, an actress, an Uruguayan vedette called Alicia Muñiz. Carlos Monzon basically was a wife beater, and he actually murdered his ex-partner by throwing her from the balcony of his house. So Patricia Perello was also her lawyer, his lawyer, in this case, but Carlos Monzon was found guilty of that murder. One of the main techniques used by the lawyer was essentially fairly misogynist character assassination, where he would make claims against the character of the women or the young young girls who had gone missing, saying that they were promiscuous and would seek to get out, get drunk, hook up with boys, and that it was the parents' fault for raising them poorly and for letting them out the nights that they were uh, abused and murdered. She also tried to, because this lawyer, she's already well-known in, in the community, uh, was uh, actually, I don't think she was physically attacked, physically assaulted after a trial, but there was a big mob of people that were rooting for Natalia's cause. So when the, this lawyer came out of the trial, mm. she was insulted and berated, and rightfully so. I mean, I'm not saying that bullying the lawyer would work for anything, but later on, she would uh, argue that um, Natalia Melman's dad, uh, Gustavo, was actually a man that was conducting these uh, riots or assaults mm-hmm. against her. And what she tries uh, to do is to victimize the, um, the policemen. Uh, a new trial was held on 2017 for the same crime, the mm-hmm. same crime that uh, these cops have already been proven that committed and they didn't add any sort of new witness mm-hmm. but they were witnesses that were trying to to make a false alibis for those cops also it was found out that uh, station log books mm-hmm. had been doctored mm-hmm. to uh, come out in favor of the police to say they weren't where they they yeah, they weren't present during the during the uh, disappearance or putting them elsewhere at the time. However, it was found out that these books were doctored and as of yet, there still hasn't been an investigation into the... Uh, no, into the deep poli- police corruption. And the, you know, the institutional cover-up, essentially, that uh, occurred to get these police or to attempt to get the police off the hook for the murder. And on a news that was... Um, and I knew that uh, that came out the thirty or the thirty of January of two thousand twenty-one. That is this year. It seems like the lawyer of the Melman family, Federico Parolo, that took, that also was the lawyer of uh, the family of a different boy that was murdered by the police in Argentina. I told you about that case mm-hmm. the other day. He did. We might talk about him. Mm. Uh, Sebastián Barrón, well, Parolo, the lawyer of the Melman family, said that he was going to ask for the um, Buenos Aires police 
to run a scan with the fifth DNA, the unknown DNA, among all the agents of the police that were working in Miramar in the time of uh, Natalia Melman murder. So I'm just so surprised that the police mm. are being asked to do this because it really sounds like it's uh, common sense. Like if you already know that three of your officers took part of this crime, they should have done that DNA test right away, but they never did it because they are accomplices. I mean, mm. that's the reason of the, mm. the police <laughs> misbehavior or no, the police corruption. Mm-hmm. But as of, you know, as is unfortunately regularly seen, the corruption doesn't just stop with the uh, police officers. It often goes all the way up the chain. And um, in when you start shaking the tree, as they say, uh, a lot of the fruit falls uh, from the top as well. So I'm sure the last thing some of the more senior members of the police force, local government, judiciary, you know, all the, all the important, uh, uh, members of society would, uh, would not want their, you know, uh, complicit behavior and actions, you know, seeing the light of day as in, in such an inquiry. Um, so it, it's no surprise that such a, uh, Judicial inquiry or uh, an inquiry just now. (laughs) Yep, and you could understand why they want out of town or you know police who aren't uh, and judiciary and investigators who aren't local, wanting them to uh, run the investigation so that uh, you know there's there's no personal interest in obscuring the the facts and the evidence, provided they can get it still. So this is a hell of a case. Mm. Like I said, it was the 20th anniversary of Natalia's murder. So surprisingly, I say surprisingly enough, I didn't know about this case until I knew about the anniversary. And I say surprisingly because the, um, the amount, the number of female that are murdered in Argentina every year because of gender violence under it's so it's so high. So mm-hmm. I like, I like, so to speak, I'm interested in this case because we can see that for one side we have violence against women because mm-hmm. Natalia was a girl and she was kidnapped to be abused, sexually mm-hmm. abused by this man. And she was murdered to cover that crime, basically. That mm-hmm. is what we assume mm-hmm. why she was murdered. And on the other side we have institutional violence. That is because the perpetrators of the crime were part of the police forces, mm-hmm. which are allegedly there to protect the citizens and not murder That's us. Absolutely, and hold positions of power in the community. And, as you said, uh, institutional violence inflicts across power, the, the power divide. The statistics of police violence in Argentina are also particularly particularly high. There are some other cases of police violence that I would like to talk a bit more in some other occasion. Mm-hmm. And we could do some of Australia because I'm sure Australian police has some dirty, oh yes, um, dirty clothes hanging around. Uh, absolutely, just uh, you have to look at the 
case of the Luna Park Funfair ghost train fire just to look at police corruption and murder. And it's... uh, We're so going to do an episode of that. Yeah, maybe coming up. But in the wake of such such a horrific crime, um, it did bring a spotlight on institutional violence, particularly against women, and also acts of femicide, which at the time wasn't considered to be a separate crime. We're talking about the case of Natalia. Yes. Because I was telling Chris that in Argentina we have the legal figure of femicide, that is the murder of a woman because of her woman condition. So we could say that it's a crime. Essentially a hate crime. A hate crime. Against women. Thank you very much. And there are just very few countries that had that figure because um, adding feminicide to the legal system in Argentina was something that was carried on by the feminist movement. Mm. Nowadays, now uh, in an um, interview, Laura Calampuca, the mother of Natalia, would say that if Natalia had been murdered nowadays, it would have been a feminicide. And it would have also attracted a higher uh, sentencing rate as well. I believe at the time, the maximum, which I think some of the police got, was 25 years. It was Gustavo... Tavo Fernandez, the one that mm. got 25 years, but uh, the cops got uh, a life sentence. Mm. But there were three charges mm-hmm. in this case. Um, but the uh, rather than homicide, femicide has a maximum sentence of 35 years rather than 25. Some people argue about uh, what uh, importance of how essential feminism is for this work. I'm just going to talk about numbers because sometimes it's easier to understand the severity of a situation with numbers. Let's remember that each number of this statistic is is a human being. It's a human being. So from the 1st of January to the 31st of March of 2021, 65 femicides had happened in Argentina. That is, 65 women have been murdered. Of that... Of the perpetrators, 63% were partners or ex-partners of the victim. And of that number, 17% of the perpetrators were part of the police force or the army. So the the cross-section, the intersection of institutional figures committing femicide is alarmingly high. High, yeah. So even though a lot of steps have been made and the death of Natalia did galvanise a lot of uh, different sections of society, particularly uh, in the city of Miramar. Miramar. Mm-hmm. And Natalia's mother, Laura, is still living in the city and still organising and acting as a public figure to speak out against institutional and acts of femicide and and gender-focused violence. It's one good thing you could say that has come out is that there is the solidarity by this particular city, but by citizens everywhere across Argentina, that even though it's still high and there still is 
uh, problems with institutional complicity and covering up or ignoring acts of violence against women, that it's being spoken about, it's being spoken about publicly, and that people are aware that it is a severe issue, and however, it's one that is not going away, and people are clearly sick of it. And people around the world should know it as mm. well, because I think we know a lot about the police brutality that happens in that state, particularly against the African-American and people of color communities. But um, the police violence in not only Argentina and Latin America, it is quite high, as well as the gender violence. Yes. Thank you for listening to our commentary and our dive into the murder, rape, torture of Natalia Melman. Next time we... We promise that we will be more constant on our recordings. Yes. Hopefully I won't be waylaid again. And again, I would love to thank the wonderful Steph Animal for providing the intro and outro music. Yes. One of our... Local musical gems. Thank you, Steph. We love you lots. We would like to add a small disclaimer about our last episode about the killer couple David and Catherine Bernie. While we were talking about uh, David Bernie's childhood, we also include some testimonies that said that he was a sex addict and into fetish sex. So we didn't say that in that episode, so we are going to say this now. We're not doing any sort of kink shaming. Uh, what we meant to say is in that episode is that we were trying to describe the characteristics of the sex life and fantasy of David Bernie, which at the end turned out to be closely related to the motivation behind the abductions and murder that he, that he performed with his partner, Catherine. So then again, that a person likes or is into kinky or fetish sex doesn't mean that they are rapists or that they are abusers. A person can have such sort of fantasies and indulge in them in a healthy way. The thing is that David Bernie wasn't just only the fictional stuff. He wanted to perform real rapes. We thought that it was important that we should make this point very clear. Thanks again for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, you can find us on social media. Our Instagram is a history of evil men. That's all in one word, so just search for that. Our Facebook is a history of evil men, a true crime podcast. And if you'd like to email us, our address is a history of evil men at gmail.com. No spaces in that. That's all one word. And if you'd like to support us, our Patreon is A History of Evil Men. Same as before, all one word. Thanks again for listening.